Looks like Jake's handing out some Bibles. So Jake, if they don't have one, just be like, you need this. And they're like, I do it on my phone. And you're like, you don't need those Facebook notifications while you're trying to read God's word. Put your phone in your pocket and open up a Bible. I'm just kind of joking. I mean, you know, if, uh, if that's how you roll, study on your phone. But we got Bibles. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that one with you. That's our gift to you. On our birthday, we gave you a gift. You're welcome. Um, a couple quick things. We've talked about it for a couple weeks in a row. We are a church plant, and uh, we are a church that is into church planting. So the organization that we planted with uh, is called ARC. Last weekend, they planted their thousandth church, Woo! which is pretty cool. We celebrated that. Uh, we were number 623 five years ago, if uh, you care about that, which you probably don't. But anyway... Um, Two weeks ago, we had Jeremy up here teaching, and um, Jeremy taught and brought the word, and it was incredible, and him and his wife, Katerina, are planting a church with the same organization. Uh, They've been in Spokane uh, for about a year, and like an intern program, they've been learning from different pastors, and we've been a part of that process. It's been really cool, and so uh, we are sending them out as a network to plant in Seattle in the fall. So if it stirred on your heart two weeks ago, I know we kind of ran out of time, uh, but to give to them, uh, our tithe box is in the back. If you write in the memo note, um, Jeremy and Katerina, we will know where to give that money uh, if that's something you want to do. And I would hope that Riverstone Chapel just writes them a huge old fat check because you guys are all so generous. That's what my hope would be. So, um, but do what God calls you to do. Uh, small groups are starting up, have started up. If you're not aware of that, uh, we just kicked off or are kicking off. Some groups have started. Some groups are starting in the next week or two. Uh, our winter quarter. And so check out the website if you're interested in getting involved with the small group. And uh, last thing, you should have got your tithing receipt in the mail or in the email uh, in this last week. So if you didn't get that or if it was wrong or something like that, um, talk to Zach. Woo! Which is awesome because for the first four years, I had to do it by myself. And now I'm like, talk to Zach, y'all, because it ain't my job. Here we go. Acts chapter 19. That's a good feeling. You guys will never know it, but it's a great feeling. We're going to start. Uh, in verse 21, uh, when we get there. Let's start with this question. Is there anybody in here who does not wish that God would do something amazing? Just one? Is there anybody in here that's like, ah, you know what? God, like, moving powerfully and doing miraculous things and changing lives and setting people free and the whole, like, Old Testament lame walk, blind see, deaf hear, like, freedom from anything. Like, ah, I'm not really into that. I just kind of want to keep it the same. I would hope not. I would hope that all of our desires are that God would do incredible things. I would hope you wouldn't think that, you know what's best for me is if God just keeps things the same. And let's just say that our hopes came true. Our hopes and desires came true. And God did some amazing thing here in this church. In the, like maybe on this Sunday, right? Like the Holy Spirit just comes and like people are like confessing sin and weeping. And like, it was just like a powerful move of the Spirit. And there's like conviction and like, Like, maybe there's some sort of miraculous signs that God is actually at work. Maybe all that stuff would take place. What would you expect to happen next? What would be the next thing? After the incredible move of God's Spirit, like God is clearly working, He's clearly doing something miraculous and wonderful. What would be the next thing that would happen? Would you expect your life to go back to normal? 
Would you expect just to carry on right back to the things you were doing before? See, humans are weird creatures because we want to see God do amazing things, but we also don't like change. We want to see God work in incredible, powerful, wonderful ways, but we also kind of like the things we like, and we kind of like how it's set up right now. And so we actually want God to do amazing things, but we always want things to stay the same. And those things are actually completely opposite ideas. And yet they're both kind of what we hope for. We hope for two things that cannot be true simultaneously. Powerful, God-transforming change for the better and keeping the status quo like it is. And this happened in our story last week, if you remember. Paul was preaching in the city of Ephesus for three years, and what began to happen was people began to confess their sin and follow Jesus. And what was amazing about it is there was many people who were previously involved, involved in the occult and in witchcraft and things, and they were bringing their books and burning them. And there, were, there was like this public movement of people like confessing their sin and burning the, like over a million dollars worth of books publicly as a way of saying like, hey, this world has nothing for me. That old life that I was living, it's got nothing. I, I lived it. There's nothing there for me, right? There, there's, I, I, try, I walk down that road and you know what? It's a dead end. And this is our way of saying publicly, like, this does not mean anything. Like, we will give this up. And they were sacrificing, like, these books, like, of value, over a million dollars. And, and, and using this as, like, a, a kind of a, a confession and repentance and, like, a sign to the world. Right? There's that old song, like, you can have all of this world, give me Jesus. Right? It's just like that idea, like, you can have this crap. I've done it for too long. I've walked in this stuff for too long. I thought that road would make me happy. It never did. I don't want any of it anymore. And that's what was happening. This incredible and amazing and powerful work of God. So back to my original question. What would you expect to happen next? What do you think is going to happen next in our story? What is the follow-up when God does something amazing? Do you think their life's going to be easier now? More comfortable does God do amazing things to solve our problems? Does God do wonderful works just to make it more comfortable for your life? What if God working didn't actually solve any of your problems? What if God working actually made new problems? Actually, that's probably a better way to say it. What if God working solved some of your problems but made new problems for you? What if they were bigger and more significant problems than you had before? That happens all the time. It's going to happen in our text today in Acts chapter 19. But here's what changes. Fundamentally, the type of problems are the right types of problems to have. Whereas before they had the wrong types of problems, like they're like, oh, my spell and witchcraft wasn't working very well. Like, that's a really bad problem to have, right? Now it's like, hey, I'm living in poverty because I burned my witchcraft book. That's a great problem to have. I actually have an example. Uh, we know this family, uh, and the husband is into music and loves Jesus, and he plays his guitar in the living room very loudly at times and annoys the wife, right? And the funny thing is, uh, from my position as a pastor, I'm, like, sitting there, like, it's a problem. I get it. Nobody likes overly loud, like, inconsiderate noises in their living room, like, at any time of the day, but... Right? Like, I'm a pastor. I get phone calls all the time. Right? How many wives out there is like, yeah, the biggest problem is my husband plays worship music too loud. 
No, there's a bunch of wives in here that, that got drunk husbands. They got video game husbands. They got lazy husbands. They're like, we will trade. Like, I will trade you my video game husband for your worship music husband any day. Right? That's a good problem to have. I was a, 10 year, I was a youth pastor for 10 years. And the, you know what the two biggest complaints I got? The first one is this. People would call me and they'd be like, hey, my kid's messed up. Please fix them. Right? And the details always change a little bit. Drugs, sex, bad friends, whatever. You know, lying. Like, the details would change a little bit. But it was always kind of the same conversation, right? My kid's really messed up. He's been doing these really bad things and making these poor choices. Would you please fix them? Somehow you talk to him and fix them. And then the next call I would get, and this was the second most common problem I'd get from parents. It's like, you know, youth group's really an inconvenient time for us, and we can't, we can't get our kid a ride. I mean, our kid wants to go, but giving him a ride is really hard. And sometimes I get those calls in the same day, right? Like in the morning, I'd be like, hey, my 16-year-old, he got his 14-year-old girl pregnant, and they were out drinking. He's been sneaking out at night, and he actually has an STD, and like, we're not really sure like, if he's going to come home anymore. Would you please reach out to him? And then like two seconds later, ring, ring. Like, Tuesdays are just busy for us. Like, we can't really make it. And I'd be like, hold, please. I got a parent on the other line that wants to punch you in the neck, right? It's like, these are the good types of problems to have and this is what's going to happen this morning, is we're going to get problems, but they're going to be great problems to have, and we're going to see God work through these problems after this amazing work of his spirit from last week. So look at verse 21 of chapter 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Here's the first thing that changes after God does this incredible work of the Spirit from last week. The first thing that changes is God calls Paul into a new season of his life. Now, if you remember, if you've been going through Acts with us, Paul's been in Ephesus for about three years, right? He's been teaching the Word of God, right? It's kind of been this progression of like, yeah, like things are happening. Apollos gets his theology figured out. These 12 guys who didn't know about the Holy Spirit, they get their theology figured out. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit comes down and starts working in mighty ways in Ephesus. And then this whole crazy thing happens where people are burning their witchcraft books and like mass repentance and revival and confession of sin. And then the next thing that happens is Paul resolves in the Holy Spirit that this is a new season. He's got to leave. Now, that's not how we usually do it, right? It, it, it's not exactly what you would expect when God moves mightily. There's a momentum of confession, repentance, and sacrifice for the kingdom. And instead of Paul staying there and keep going, God stirs up in Paul to move on to a new season, new obedience. It's going to look different than it has for the last three years. Now, there's an interesting combination of factors at work here right? Like, this is a hard thing to walk away from, especially a successful thing, right? Paul is now walking away from this thing that's finally working, and finally working in a way that's really impactful. And the second thing is, 
uh, it's not in the text, but we know from historically, the church in Jerusalem is struggling financially. And so when Paul says that he's going to go through Macedonia and Acacia and then go back around to Jerusalem, he's going through these churches that we just talked about when we went through the book of Acts in chapters 16, 17, 18, 19, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Berea. Those are all in Acacia and um, Macedonia. So he's going to go through these churches he has a relationship with and collect a tithe offering for the church in Jerusalem and take it back to Jerusalem. So that's what is taking place here. But it's an interesting thing because what he's doing is working. He doesn't have to meet that need. He doesn't have to go. He doesn't have to leave this thing. But... The text says he resolved in the Spirit. So Paul seems to think, has come to the conclusion, that this new season of life is not just some good idea that he has, but something the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is actually moving him into. How does he know that? How how do you know that the Holy Spirit is telling you something specific? Paul, that's a pretty cool trick Because most of us as Christians, we would gladly do exactly what God is telling us to do if we were only certain that God was the one telling us to do it, right? Like if I got up here on stage and I was like, we need a million dollars. You guys would be like, sure you do. But if God, if you were convinced that that was exactly what God had called you to do, you'd probably all give it. Right? Because we live in this world where we're like, I want to do what God wants me to do. And then we're just not sure exactly what that is. So how do we gain the confidence that this decision that we're making, maybe this new season, this choice that we're walking through, is from God? This is not just an idea that we have in our head, but a move of the Spirit. Do you have any sort of plan to figure out if the Spirit of God is on board with your plans or the way you're living your life? This is a real question. You don't have to answer me out loud, but like think through your life. Do you have any sort of plan to like, hey God, are you on board with this? Is this your leading or is this just something I decided to do? Now, it sounds very mystical, right? And like, ooh, complicated. They're like, we got to figure out what the spirit of God wants us to do. It's actually not that mystical or complicated at all. It's frustratingly simple, actually. And the problem that most people have is not that they want to know what the Spirit of God is leading them to do. It's that they're completely indifferent to what the Spirit of God is leading them to do. Like, no, I'm just going to do my thing, and hopefully God blesses it, instead of actually seeking what God is calling us to do. There's actually four things that the Bible says that the Spirit of God uh, is revealed in its leading, right? It's the Word of God, the condition of your heart, the people of God, and what the Bible calls fruit, or or the objective results of an action, okay? So those are very clear in the Bible, right? The Word of God communicates the Spirit of God, right? The conviction of your heart is something you should pay attention to as the Spirit of God works in your heart, right? The people of God, they obviously, we've seen it through Acts chapter 19, very often are used by the Spirit of God to accomplish His will. And then the Bible says, look at the fruit, You made a choice, or you're about to make a choice. What's going on in your life? What are you doing? What's coming out of it? This is a great plan. If you don't have a plan on like, hey, how do I do something like Paul would do and resolve in the Spirit of God? Ask yourself these questions. What does the Word of God say? Is it sin or is it not sin? Clearly, 
right? There's lots of stuff that the Bible says is sin. Like, I think the, the, that God wants me to be happy and my secretary is really pretty and so I'm going to leave my wife. Like, no, actually that's sin. So that's not the spirit of God. That's pretty simple, right? Like, I want, I think God wants me to, you know, and there's all sorts of things that people say they think God is calling them to do and it's actually called sin in the Bible. So it's definitely not the spirit of God's leading. Second thing, what are the motivations of your heart? Be honest about it. Lots of times we say something is for God, but we do it because we think it helps us. I'm going to do this, but it's actually kind of more for me. Third thing, what do people who love God and love me think about this thing that I'm saying I'm doing or about to do? And most people, we've talked about this over the last three weeks, about the idea of community and confession and blind spots. And most people just don't have any relationships where this is actually taking place. Nobody would even ask this type of a question, right? Like, should I spend my money on this? Should we buy a new car? Should I take this new job? Right? The vast majority of humans in our world don't even ask those types of questions. They'd be like, I know if I need a new car or not. I know what job I should take. I know what house I should move into. I know what church I should attend, right? We fill in all these blanks, right? We don't actually ask people who have wisdom. And the Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. And then the fourth one, what's the fruit? How's your spiritual health? Right, we've talked about this one before. Well, I was smoking weed and I feel like the Holy Spirit talked to me. Eh, probably not, right? Like, yeah, so I stole this car and then I like just had this epiphany. Like, mm, probably not. Right? Like, there's these things that are going on in your life. Like, I haven't read my Bible, I haven't prayed, I don't have any Christian friends, and I haven't been to church in six months, but I think God is telling me to do this. I'm like, yeah, maybe think that through a little bit. Right? There's not a lot of fruit going on in your life that would tell me that you are great at discerning what the Spirit is leading you to do. But Paul comes to this conclusion, whatever his method is, right, that the Spirit of God is moving him into a new season. And look at what happens in this. As soon as Paul resolves that he's about to leave town. Verse 22, And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades. And he said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see that in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So Ephesus, the city of Ephesus at the time, was the third largest uh, city in the Roman Empire. It housed the great temple of Artemis. Apparently it was huge, magnificent, one of the wonders of the world for its time. People would come to Ephesus to worship Artemis in like any sort of like uh, touristy, like des destination type place. Uh, there was like a like an industry around it, like selling little collectibles and things like that. And the silversmiths would actually make these little statues of Artemis or of the temple to Artemis, and people would take it home and put it in their little shrines and use it in worship of Artemis. But what has happened is people in Ephesus started getting saved. 
right? They clearly are not caring about the money and things like that. And so they're burning their millions of dollars worth of witchcraft books. And apparently they're no longer buying as many little statues of Artemis as they used to. And the silversmiths are looking around going like, hey, we're losing money here. This is like, how awesome would that be if the Christians in a community had such a radical heart change and like lived such an authentic faith that it economically impacted our city. Somebody say amen to that. That would be incredible. But if you watch the big events here, God does a mighty work in the city, and the problem of witchcraft gets better, but now we have a new problem. The silversmiths are starting a riot. Right When it says they're chanting at the end, they're enraged in verse 28, and they're crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is like a giant group of thousands of people screaming and rioting and chanting. And we all live through COVID, so we know like what the rioting thing looks like. Right? It's ugly. It's a big group of people freaking out. And like we said in the opening, this is actually a good problem to have. That Christians are living so authentically that it's economically impacting idol makers. Like, that's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem and a really big problem. Now, you know, if you go through the teachings of Jesus, there are actually only two things that Jesus says in his teachings reveal your heart. What comes out of your mouth, out of your mouth, the heart speaks, and what you spend your money on. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? So the two things that reveal your heart, what comes out of your mouth when you think nobody else is listening, right? When you think like, oh, the church people aren't around, what comes out of your mouth in those moments and what you spend your money on. So you can tell me till you're blue in the face. No, I love God. I'm a Jesus follower. Okay. Let me see your bank statement. That's what Jesus said. That's not me. Like, I'm not trying to like... I'm just saying what Jesus said, right? You can pretend your heart is devoted to Jesus all you want, but when you are speaking when you think no one's listening and when you're spending your wealth, that reveals the real condition of your heart and what's really important to you. And on the flip side of that, this is why the silversmiths are so angry because they're losing money, right? This is exactly what Jesus said. Where your treasure is, your heart's going to be also. So when they start to lose money, they're like, Whoa, this is not okay. And they start rioting. And what happens is Demetrius' speech enrages the crowd to riot, and they begin chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, over and over and over. And look what happens in verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Erasticus, Aristarchus, and Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. So the Crowd is clearly upset with Paul, but apparently they can't find Paul or something. But they found two other men who were known to be friends of Paul, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they dragged them into the theater in anger. Now, the theater is gigantic. It's this 25,000-seat uh, space in Ephesus. So there's a huge crowd chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and now they have apprehended these two guys. It's a pretty scary situation. Look at verse 30. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and urged him not to venture into the theater. So Paul's hears what's happening, and he decides he's going to go into the theater and figure it out. But the other Christians in Ephesus, probably his friends, they won't let him. 
They won't let him leave. The word implies that they physically restrain him. They're like, no, you're not going into the theater, Paul. They're basically restraining him or blocking the door or something. And then Paul gets a message from friends. Asiarchs is like high-ranking political officials, right? He has some friends that are in that area, and they send him a note. They're like, we know you, Paul. Stay out of the theater. It's too dangerous for you. And here's where things get unexpectedly hard. We talked about the work of God creating new problems, and here's another one. Paul now has to have faith in the protection of God, not for himself, but for his friends. Right? There's not levels to this thing, but if there were, right, walking in faith for yourself is like here. Trusting God in faith for somebody else is like here. And the parents in the room know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because what happens is we get, we, okay, I need to follow God. I need to give things up for God. I need to sacrifice. I need to be obedient. I need to surrender. And so we start to walk by faith. And then we have kids, and we're like, I don't want him to sacrifice. I want him to surrender. I want to give him everything he wants, right? I want him to have the life of his dreams. And actually, that's not biblical, you have to trust God will be as good in your kid's life and protect your kids and take care of your kids just like you trust God to be good in your life and protect you. And you have to walk by faith not only in the decisions you make, but then in the decisions you walk your, watch your kids make. Actually, it wasn't my kids that first brought this to my attention. It was my wife. We went on our honeymoon, right, in Fiji. And I didn't know this, but in Fiji... Uh, it's like half islanders, like you would expect, like Hawaiian type, you know, South Pacific islanders. And then the other half, because Fiji was a uh, English territory or whatever, I don't know, not super locked in on the English geography thing, but somehow they were associated with England and India was also a British territory, right? There was a lot of Indians, like from India, like it looked like India. And it was, like, really shocking to me because I did not know this before we went there on our honeymoon. So, like, we get off the plane, and I was like, this looks like India. And I thought it was going to look like Hawaii. And I was like, oh, okay. And, like, the poverty is crazy in Fiji. You know, you got the Fiji bottle of water, and you see that little waterfall into the thing. You're like, oh, that place is wonderful. It's actually a really poor country. And so you're walking around, and these large sections of Fiji look like India. And you're like, whoa, this did not expect it. So my, my wife and I were sitting at this hotel, and we got a taxi to the town because our hotel was, like, out of the town. We wanted to see the place. So then we are walkers. I don't know why, but we just walk places. So we get a taxi into the town. It's a couple miles. And uh, we get out of the taxi, which is just like a Toyota, right? I don't know if you've been to those third-world countries where they just use normal cars. Anyway. Not part of my plan. So we get out, and this guy is saying, he's like, hey, come to my market. There's a market down the road. I want to go there. I was like, no, I don't want to go to your market. And so I start walking, right? And all of a sudden, the guy pops out in front of me. He's like, friend. I was like, we're not friends. He's like, come to my market. It's just this way. And I was like, I don't want to go to your market. So I, we keep walking. No, 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 thank you, right? And we walk all the way out of town, like far out of town. We're on a dirt road. It's beautiful. We're by this river. Right? We decide we're probably too far. So we turn around. We came back into town, and we like skirt around the town and come in from a completely different way, right? Out of nowhere, this guy pops out in front of me again. 
hey, friend, you're close to my market. Come to my market. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this dude's following me or something. He's got, like, surveillance. I'm, like, a little annoyed. And I was like, no, we're not following you. So I'm, like, trying to lose him. I'm, like, thinking I'm sly. And I come around the corner, and I look, and there's, like, this huge building. And then there's no, like, walls on the bottom floor, but there's, like, a flea market in there. And it's, like, got a roof, but no, and there's just, like, thousands of people in there. And guess who pops out? Friend, my market is right here, right? And I was like, oh my gosh, I thought I lost him. And now we're like across the street from his market. And I was like, okay, there's got to be, I just got to get this over with. I'll just go look at his stuff. Be like, yeah, it sucks. Well, I wouldn't say that. I'd be like, oh, I don't have any money. And like leave. And so I go, okay, okay. So I follow him in here and we're like getting deeper into this thing. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I get like maybe 50 yards into this dark like flea market thing and there's just people everywhere bumping me and I'm the tallest one by like a foot and a half and I'm this is like creeping me out and I start to realize my wife's with me I was like oh my gosh like I've been a single guy for my whole life I was like if I needed to beat somebody up and run away like I could I couldn't beat him up right you're like you're looking at me like he's skinny I could run fast right so I was like if it all goes bad, like, I can at least run, right? Now I'm like, what am I doing in here with a wife, right? It was this huge realization of, like, oh, my gosh. Like, I got to trust God for me and for her now. And this was really stupid. You shouldn't have walked in here, right? And there are all these people bumping me. And just about that time, like, I'm, like, spinning around this corner, and there's a nail sticking out of, like, one of the pallets that's on a wall, and it, like, catches my backpack. So I think somebody's grabbing my backpack. And I was like, Gah! I was like, I'm about to kill people in here. And I'm scared. And I was, there was a stupid choice to bring my wife in here. And this guy's like, come on. And I was like, no, I'm not coming. And I, like, yelled at him. I'm like, we're leaving. I grabbed my wife, and we walked out of there. And praise God, nothing happened. But I just remember walking all the way back to the taxi going like, oh, my gosh. I have to trust God with this woman now. It's not just about me anymore. Like, there's somebody else. And I think Paul's probably having that moment, right? Paul's been through this stuff. He's been arrested. He's had the Holy Spirit break him out of jail. He's been beaten with rods. He's like, I got this. Like, God will take care of me. And now his two friends get pulled into this theater of rioting people, and he's not allowed to go in. And now he's got, I have to trust God for Gaius and Aristarchus. I have to put my money where my mouth is and believe that God's going to be as good in their life as I think he could be in my life. And that's a real test of faith. And I wonder, I wonder what Gaius and Aristarchus are thinking. Right? They've watched Paul. Paul's been the lead point guy for the whole time. He's gotten the beatings. He's gotten the imprisonment. Him and Silas were in the prison in Philippi. They were singing at midnight. They were doing all that stuff. And now they're the ones they get arrested. Do you think it's a coincidence that right after Paul decides I'm leaving, Gaius and Aristarchus get apprehended in this place? Now they have to walk out their own faith. They can't just follow the leaders and them push you forward on faith. They have to make it their own and say, no, no, no now I got to realize God is going to be this good in my life as I've seen him be in Paul's life. Do you know that nobody is exempt from living out a faith that costs you something? Do you know there's not levels of Christians in here? It's like, well, the faith is going to cost me something because I'm the pastor. 
And then the worship leader, Jake, it's going to cost him something. And then it's probably going to cost uh, a few small group leaders something. But the rest of you, faith isn't ever going to cost you anything. That's false. That's false. If you decide to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. If this church is going to grow, then more of the church is going to have to have their faith cost them something, like is happening in this, right? We made it through five years. Like, it wasn't without a lot of stuff. It cost a lot of people a lot of things to make it five years. And to be honest, a lot of the people aren't even from Washington. There was a ton of people who sacrificed time, money, energy, and poured into Megan and I or sent checks to get this church started, so there's a lot of people who gave a lot of things to see God work in this way. If we're going to do another five years, it's going to take another five years worth of people who are willing to have their faith cost them something. And I think Gaius and Aristarchus are realizing that now. Right? If the church is going to grow like it needs to grow, then they're going to have to step up and endure this trial in a way that they've never done before so that Paul can go do what the Spirit of God is calling him to do and they can continue to minister in Ephesus. I wonder if they expected this. We asked the question at the beginning. What do you expect after God does a great thing? Do you expect new problems that you need to solve, that the Holy Spirit needs to guide you through? Because that's exactly what's happening to Gaius and Aristarchus. You have a new opportunity through extreme difficulty to trust God and walk by faith in a way you never have before. And look at what happens in verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense for the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So this riot is happening. They try to like calm it down, and they just start chanting, Great is Artemis! Great is Artemis! Great! And they like shout them down. And for two hours, that's all they say, chanting and chanting and chanting and chanting. You know, in that same passage where Jesus said, your treasure reveals where your heart is, right before that, he told people to store up treasure for yourself that will not perish. One of Jesus' teachings was, you have this ability to store up treasure on earth but it won't last. It'll go away. Or you can store up for yourself treasure in heaven, and it will last forever. And I read this story of these people chanting for two hours, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, and I just think, it didn't last. They spent all this time, all this money, all this energy, and it didn't last. You know how I didn't last? I've been to this building. Like, there's not very many places in your Bible that are this specific, right? When the Bible talks about locations, it's usually regions or cities or areas, but very, 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 very rarely does it ever single out buildings. The theater in Ephesus is still there. I've been there. Meg and I have been there. Actually, I'll put it on the screen. Meg and I have sat in this building, right? We sat right over here. Right above this little thing. We sat right over there and we did a little Bible study on this chapter. 
And you know who wasn't there? Anybody worshiping Artemis. Like, think about this. There is a building that's in your scriptures that you could go to. You could get on a plane and go to it today if you have a negative test, right? But you could go there if you wanted to. And nobody there is worshiping Artemis. Nobody even knows where the temple to Artemis even was. They have some ideas, like the archaeologists. We think it was over here. Can't even find it. But you know who is going to be there? Jesus followers. Tons of them. Going to the place where two men followed up this incredible work of God by walking into a new problem where there was faith, their faith was tested in a new way and stepping into a new area of leadership and growth that they probably weren't expecting. And yeah, they were probably like, yeah, this is awesome, God's working, and didn't know that a couple days later they're going to be sitting in this place walking by faith in a way they never had before. Why? Because God called Paul into a new season. And look at verse 35. We'll finish the chapter. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and one of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the other craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. And let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. And look at the next chapter. Keep going. And after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. I read that first verse because the language seems to, seems to indicate that it, there wasn't like a week later, right? It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul's like, okay, where's my leaders? Hey, guys, I'm out. And he goes. He goes on his trip. God calls him into the new season. I wonder why it's at this moment that Paul decides it's time to go. I wonder if there's something in watching the faith of Gaius and Aristarchus and making it through that and the uproar quiets down and they make it out and they're like, oh my gosh, it was crazy and then God took care of us and like they were chanting for two hours, but we're still here, praise God. And Paul's like, they get it now. I can leave. The church in Ephesus is in good hands. Gaius, Aristarchus, you hang out. You'll do just fine. Now I can go. It's, it's a guess, but that's what I read when I read that in verse 21. It's, it's going to be the foundation of the rest of the book. Paul's like, I got to go to Rome. And there's probably something in his heart that like, I can't leave for Rome until this thing is settled. And he watches Gaius and Aristarchus walk by faith in a way they never had before. And he's like, okay, now it's time to go. There's some interesting ways uh, that problems affect us after God works in a mighty way. Maybe ways that you wouldn't expect. Maybe ways that are new problems that you didn't see coming. And it's definitely a, a possibility that there are people in here who, through the mighty work of God, are called into new seasons of life. 
new ways of doing things, new areas of ministering, new habits, new patterns, new, like, hey, I got to get this out of here and burn the books so I can do a new life. Paul's called into that new season in a different location. Ephesian Christians in this passage are called into a new season in their city of conflict now with the worshipers of Artemis. And then there's Gaius and Aristarchus who are in a new season where their faith is tested in ways that's never been before. Same place, but new level of faith and probably a new sense of responsibility within the church because Paul is leaving. It's kind of a guess, but I, I don't wonder if Paul didn't watch God take care of this situation and go, Holy Spirit, you got it. I got to go. I believe there's disciple makers in this room. I believe there's small group leaders in this room. I believe there's worship leaders and Bible teachers and maybe even a church planner or two. I don't know. Maybe you'll be really good at it. And after a while, I'll be like, you got it. I'm a leaf, right? I don't know. But I do know this. The Holy Spirit does not leave you like he found you, right? We started this by like, I want to see this great work of God. Nobody raised your hand. You're like, nah, I really don't care if God works at all. All of you left your hands down. So I'm taking that all to mean that you want to see God do something amazing. Well, if that's going to happen, then your life by function of the Spirit is going to be different on the way out than it was on the way in. Maybe that's today for some of you. Maybe you're feeling the conviction of the Spirit like, hey, like that world has nothing for me. Maybe you take, draw the line in the sand, right? On Riverstone Chapel's fifth birthday, we're like new season for us, new levels of faith for us, new habits for us. Maybe you'll be better than you were before at walking by faith, at honoring God, at discerning the Spirit. Do you want to see God do incredible things? In the next five years, would anybody in this room like to see God do incredible things? Yeah. Oh, one of you. Okay, great. Me and Sarah. No, all of us, right? I hope all of us. Are you willing to be obedient and step into a new season of life? Because that might be what it takes. God might call us to step out in new and incredible ways. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for your words uh, and how it instructs us and guides us and leads us and shows us uh, not only how you work, but what happens after you work, Lord. And I pray that these uh, types of callings to obedience and maybe new seasons of life would not catch us off guard, Lord, um, but we would embrace them, uh, embrace the challenge to walk by faith in new and incredible ways and maybe new seasons of life. Uh, for those in here. Uh, as we sing this last song, Lord, may you convict our hearts, if that's us, if you're calling us into a new season, Lord. And we ask you in mighty and precious name. Amen.